Hey guys, welcome to our newest episode of Clockworks. As if any of you follow us on Twitter, you may have seen us tweeting about this. We had some sound issues on this episode. We, uh, my mic just wasn't working properly, and so I'm a little echoey. Paul is perfectly fine. He does tend to talk more than me, so you'll hear his voice a little bit clearer. Um, we considered re-recording, but it was really hard to recapture the thoughts that we had. So we've left it as is, I mean, as is with lots of wonderful editing by Paul. So I hope you enjoy. I'm sorry about the not so great parts, but I think the overall message will, will, uh, make it okay. You put up with us for season one where our sound was terrible. So you can put up with us for one episode, right? Right? I hope we don't lose you. Bye. Hello, I'm Paul Moffat. I'm Jan Moffat. And this is Clockworks, a Legion podcast. And do you want to know what really grinds our gears? What, Paul? Well, um... Clock puns? Clock, uh, I know, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, well, anyway, we're talking about, uh, the season finale of... Legion Season 2, Chapter 19, we are calling it Behind Blue Eyes. Because what else could we call it? Really, there were not... Sometimes we have a conversation about what we're going to title an episode. We didn't talk about it this time. No. This episode was written by Noah Hawley. It was directed by Keith Gordon. Keith Gordon has a pretty long list of directing credits, mostly episodes of TV shows. Um, He directed 10 episodes of Dexter five episodes of Homeland, and most relevantly for uh, Legion folks, he directed four episodes of Fargo, including the season finale of season three of Fargo. Hmm. So this is his first episode of Legion, and Noah Hawley, of course, who wrote this episode, is the showrunner and creator. Do you want to take us through the episode, Jan? All right. So, coming right off the end of the last episode, the giant tuning fork, the choke, flies across the desert and lands standing up. David floats towards Farouk, singing Behind Blue Eyes. Farouk floats back, singing the same song, but in Farsi. Cartoon versions of themselves battle in the clouds. Finally, Lenny fires her gun, just as Farouk is feeding on David. She hits the choke, and it rings. Both men collapse, and David picks up a rock, ready to hit Farouk over the head. We cut to the words, Legion, Chapter 10, Three Years Later. Melanie and Oliver sit on a couch inside the ice cube, discussing how happy they are now. They say that the world has ended, they talk about how their bodies are safe somewhere, and about the people they knew. We see them eat, read poetry, and dance. So this opening, I mean, Mm -hmm. the part with the choke spinning out is great and all. Uh, Maybe we might might want to talk about it, but before we even do, (laughs) the moment when David, like, floating and, like, all distorted and starts singing Behind blue eyes, I was like, had a complete conniption yep. of yep. joy. You were so happy when that happened, and so was I. 
this battle between uh, David and Farouk is one of my favorite things I've ever seen on a TV screen. Mm-hmm. I love it so much. Uh, we'll talk a bit about Behind Blue Eyes at the end of the episode, as we usually talk about songs then. But let's just say right now that, like, I feel like if you told me that they had this song in mind and then worked backwards from there all the way to casting Dan Stevens as David because he has blue eyes so that it would lead to this song, I would believe you. That's how perfectly this song fits. It is amazing. It's the exact song that when he started singing it, I was like, of course, of course he's singing behind blue eyes. Yeah. And it's also like a really, really good performance, a cover Mm. of behind blue eyes, like very compelling Previously, my favorite cover of Behind Blue Eyes was uh, Giles from Buffy. Giles, uh, Anthony Stewart heads from Buffy, mm-hmm. which Agreed. is a great cover. Um, it may still be a, my favorite cover of Behind Blue Eyes, but it's no longer my favorite television use of Behind Blue Eyes. This mm-hmm. is better mm-hmm. as a moment of television. It's so good. And then like everything about it. The song is great. The use of sound, like the distorted sound, is great. The Just the fact that they're singing during their battle yes, exactly. is, like, amazing. Just like the dance battle, this is, like, starts off as a singing battle. This is unlike any other superhero show, unlike any other show that's, like, about a grand battle. They just do it so differently. I love it. And the visual effect of the two of them, like, floating at each other. And then they have their battle where they're not touching each other. They're Mm -hmm. just standing there. And it's all represented in these line drawings that are, by the way, completely in keeping with representations of psychic battles in the comics. But most especially, like, the 90s X-Men cartoon. Mm -hmm. They looked exactly like this. Hmm. Oh, I love it. I think it's one of the best things. And it fits with their, their chalk drawing that we saw in season one is coming back again for this. And it's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Yeah. And I love, like, I feel like I could talk for literally an entire podcast, like an entire hour about the different things that David and Farouk turn into. Like, just for example, the... David turns himself into, like, a rhino, an eagle, a shark, a squid monster, and Farouk turns himself into a bear, an eagle, a helicopter, a cyclops, which, a cyclops, you guys. Cyclops is an X-Men character. Because X-Men, yeah. Why does Farouk turn himself into a cyclops? If one of them is going to turn into something who's representative of an X-Men character, it's weird that it's Farouk. It's weird that it's Farouk. But also... The Cyclops is monstrous. Mm-hmm. And like the things you just named for David, I feel like, I mean, for many reasons, as soon as this episode started, I think the very first lines that David sings, you don't know what it's like to be the bad man. I'm the whole rest of the episode in terms of David's like turn is strongly telegraphed in that moment. If we didn't see it coming already, which we did. But, like, immediately David is telling the audience that he's a bad man without, uh, that whose dreams aren't as empty as his conscience seems to be. But then in the chalk drawings, his chalk drawing representations of himself get more monstrous. Mm -hmm. So in that, like, 
A rhino is not more monstrous or less monstrous than an eagle. Rhino comes before eagle. But, like, a T-Rex is more monstrous than an eagle. And then the, like, squid creature, mm-hmm. he gets more monstrous through the fight. Yeah. And a uh, rhino is not more monstrous than an eagle, but an eagle is a predator. Mm-hmm. And a rhino is an herbivore who is tough and has armor uh, and is aggressive. But the symbolism of a rhino is different from the symbolism of an eagle because one is a hunter who kills and the other is defensive. So he gets more aggressive, the symbolism of the things he represents himself as. And down to the reason we know the difference between them is they're represented by two different colors, green and red. And this goes back to that the episode where the where Oliver is in the John Hamm narration talking about if red is green and green is red, this is again like green, you think you are coming to associate green with good and with regular and with the and red with evil and warning and danger, but maybe it's flipped. Yep. Maybe it's not what you think. Maybe it's maybe you're thinking the exact opposite. And even in this, like red has always been associated with the Shadow King in the sense of danger. And as you say, green's been associated with kind of the normal world. But the green that they use and the red that they use, the shades that they use for these line drawings, the green looks like sickly mm-hmm. and Um, Like, it's not a natural, healthy uh, plant green. No. It's like a slime mold, sick green. Yeah. And the red isn't like a danger, danger red. Yeah, it's much orangier. So, like, the associations you get with the colors are, like, the green looks like the bad guy color. Yeah. And that's David. And then when Farouk turns into, I just want to, like, you said we could talk... For the whole show, I want to point out just one more. And if you want to talk about any more, feel free. But the other one I wanted to just point out and touch on a bit is when Fruit turns into a spider and how significant it is because he's a bloodsucker. He's a mm-hmm. parasite. Yeah. And like a spider, he's going to not just kill David, he's going to drain David. That's what he has done all along. And that, by the way, that image of the devil with yellow, like... He's like the devil with yellow eyes on top and he has a spider bottom. That is a strong allusion to how Farouk, how the Shadow King gets represented in the comics. Hmm. Yeah. And then the last thing they are is just shooting fire at each other. And that's yeah. very similar to what we saw in the chalk drawings last season. Of yeah. just, and even in real life, the, the last episode of last season is just like these two colors coming at each other. Because that's all we can use to represent it, because it's only in their minds that it's really happening. Mm-hmm. What did you think was going to happen when Lenny shot the gun? Did you think she was aiming for Farouk? What did you, did you have any assumptions? I assumed she was aiming at Farouk. Mm-hmm. Uh, though it didn't, it happened pretty quickly that the bullet goes right past. So I didn't really have time to be like a what she missed before it went straight for the choke yeah i love it i love lenny shooting the choke i think that's uh again like i absolutely love everything about that Mm -hmm. because it was very um 
again, it's very telegraphed that it lands upright. The first yeah. thing we see is the choke and it lands upright. And then when she shoots, it just seems implausible that she would shoot so far, but it's a magic gun. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to see that again in a or little second. Or at least, second. like, they keep showing us the end of the scope with a very zoomed-in eye. Yes. And so what it is is a major, like, magnifying gun to the point of, like, you can see exactly where the bullet is going to go. I think we have to accept that it's magic. because yeah. science, like, magic, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, just because I know, you know, how guns work. No amount of magnification gives an amateur that amount of aim because gravity. Yeah. So a bullet doesn't hit what you're aiming at mm-hmm. from that distance. But with a magic gun, it would. Yeah. And I say magic, you know, like sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's what I mean. It's a special gun so that she doesn't have to be a marksman to like aim even far away and it hits it. It's brilliant. And I love it. I love the use of the gun not to kill someone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Twice, twice not to kill someone. Yep. Yep. And then when she's like, okay, I'm done this. I'm going to go. And she drinks drugs, drinks drugs, inhales drugs from a crocodile. Yeah. And what's the significance of like the, uh, all the animals that people inhale drugs out of? Because Lenny, when she was Benny with uh, David... Smoked out of a frog, mm-hmm. which is connected to metamorphosis. So Lenny wasn't who she was. She was changed because of the frog. Melanie smoked out of an elephant, which symbolizes, among other things, memory. Mm-hmm. And she's dwelling in her memory, and also her memory is unreliable. And now, when when Lenny was in the apartment, what all did she smoke out of? Like tons of animals. Like a cow and a baby. And yeah. A... So a baby, and then in the next episode, she's pregnant at the beginning. We mm. see a flash. Yeah. And then here, the crocodile, because she's uh, dangerous again. Mm. And potentially betraying. Yeah. Which is the cornflake girl thing. Yeah. So then it was, like, super shocking that three years later. Yeah. And, like, I think that when we... The first time we watched this, it was like an audible gasp of like, <gasps> three years later, are you kidding me? But it's just this flash to Melanie, what is going to go on with Melanie and Oliver? Yeah. That they're actually going to go into the ice cube together. It really, I was really surprised by that because it really felt like Melanie was mad at Oliver and didn't want him to come back. But really, she just is pining for him yep. this whole time. She didn't come out the other side. She continues to be, I mean, for lack of a better word, weak. Yeah. And I was disappointed by her. I understand that. I feel like um, part of the reason that they're there is their contrast to Sid and David Mm. because Oliver did terrible things when Sfruk was in his mind, but that wasn't him and he didn't enjoy it. And that wasn't who he really was. Mm. And when he wasn't under Farouk's control anymore and she wasn't under Farouk's control anymore, they found each other again and are happy together. Yeah. That's a good right? point. Mm-hmm. And Farouk hasn't poisoned Oliver the way he has poisoned uh, David. 
And so their relationship, we don't see the steps on the way, mm-hmm. but their relationship resolves because they're still, despite everything, they still want to resolve it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's how I read this. I really, really, I see what you're saying. And like, there is, I would have kind of liked to see that moment or the, that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a little disappointed with how little, more than a little, I'm disappointed with what we have seen of Melanie this season. Mm-hmm. Because it feels like we never really saw the real Melanie all season. Definitely. Because she was always either high or under Farouk's control or both. Yeah. And most of the time that she was high, she was also under Farouk's influence secretly, right? Or something, yeah. Or something. So, like, all her speeches about her bitterness are, like, all, you know, retroactively, uh, Farouk is already influencing her. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I think, too. That's why, that's what the Minotaur represented. So it makes it hard to get a grasp on who Melanie is anymore. Mm-hmm. So I would have liked to see a little bit more of who, like a, a solider sense of who Melanie actually is now. Mm-hmm. But I don't mind them as a contrast to Sid and David, them like finding each other again some in some degree. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I was really rooting for... Oliver to get out from under Farouk's control and like be able to, because there's a tragedy of Melanie not uh, being left by Oliver and being alone, but there's also like Oliver just remembered her. Yeah. And then he's under Farouk's control again. And I was all along rooting for him to like find her again, even if she doesn't want him, for him to kind of realize that he loves and wants her mm-hmm. so i'm kind of i'm glad to see that that happened yeah that's a good point i really love this scene mm-hmm. uh apart from like everything it means just as my enjoyment of it i liked seeing funny oliver again mm-hmm. i liked seeing the two of them forgetting all their words yeah <laughs> like we've been here for an hour or no soup no we've been here longer than that <laughs> yeah and I mean, so the cho- the word choice of soup is not an accident. No. Because that is talking about when the Shadow King said, you ever try to unmake soup? Yep. And so it's implying that maybe Melanie and Oliver now are linked so strongly together that you can't unmake them. They're soup now. They're soup now. Yep. And then he, of course, quotes his poetry Yep. Because what would Oliver be without his poetry? I love it. Ooh. I I love that he calls Carrie and Carrie glasses with lab coat and the girl who would kick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really great. Yeah. Yeah. I get a lot of uh, enjoyment out of this scene. Mm-hmm. Did you look up the poem that he read? I did. I'll another- talk about it with the music. Okay. Just, I was wondering, if it, it wasn't Allen Ginsberg this time. It wasn't Allen Ginsberg yeah. this time. But it was about a sunflower. Yeah. Again. Again. Yeah. I mean, should I talk about it right now? I can. Sure. Okay. So, the poem that he reads is called, and it wasn't about a sunflower, it was about a dandelion. Dandelion. The poem that he reads is called The Dandelion. 
It's by Vachel Lindsay. I can read the whole thing. He reads the whole thing, and I can, because it's not very long. It goes, O dandelion, rich and haughty, king of village flowers, each day is coronation time, you have no humble hours. I like to see you bring a troop to beat the bluegrass spears, to scorn the lawnmower that would be like fate's triumphant shears. Your yellow heads are cut away, it seems your reign is o'er. By noon you raise a sea of stars more golden than before. So on one hand, like the sunflower, the uh, imagery of a yellow flower is connected to uh, Oliver's conception of Melanie. Mm-hmm. There's He sees her as a yellow flower, and there's a symbolism of, you know, life and freshness and vitality all connected to that. The dandelion specifically in this poem is a king whose head gets cut off but doesn't die. Yeah. And there's a secondary meaning of like, well, who is the king uh, who at this point in the episode seems to have had his head cut off metaphorically, Mm -hmm. but he just rises again more golden than before. It adds a real ominous sense that the Shadow King is like the dandelion who seems to have been cut off by the lawnmower, but no, he he is still rising. Mm-hmm. And we also have a sense of uh, David through, when we look back over both seasons, David's uh, delusions are also like the dandelion where they get cut off and then they come back with more. Hmm. So first there was just one David and then there are two and now there are three. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the sense of multiplying selves is also resonates with this poem about dandelions. Absolutely. So back in the desert, David hits Farouk repeatedly and Sid shows up holding the dripping, dripping head of the Minotaur. She points a gun at David and tells him he's not the hero, he's the villain. She tells him he's the one who needs to, he's the one who's going to end the world, but David doesn't believe it. She says that she is the hero, and she shoots him. We cut to black, and David wakes up in his childhood bedroom. The John Hamm narration about the egg delusion is playing on multiple TV screens in a loop. Two other Davids are there, and they discuss delusion. Main David says he's not sick, but powerful, a hero. David is shown an egg, and we flash back to the first time he met Sid. The other Davids try to convince him that Sid doesn't love him, and she is his delusion. Okay, so first of all, I just have to say, again with the I things I love, I absolutely love Sid carrying the Minotaur's head. Mm-hmm. That's another greatest thing. Yep. I love it. And like to flash forward a little bit, I love that we don't ever see that fight with the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. Carrie will talk about it later. And I think that's really well done because we didn't need to see it. Yeah. Uh, and whether Sid and the Minotaur switched bodies, it doesn't matter because they killed the Minotaur. Together. Doesn't matter. However, they did it. They managed it. It's mm-hmm. it's not relevant, and I like seeing the aftermath of it a mm-hmm. lot. Um, Sid. 
We have a moment of a question and Sid tells a story. Mm-hmm. She tells a story about a, about serial killers and the women married to them who know mm-hmm. on some level. And she says she knows. Yeah. I really find very compelling the parallel Sid draws between David and Son of Sam. That like something gave you commands and then you followed them and did horrible things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Son of Sam had a dog that gave him commands. It's, I don't know if it's quite fair, but it's very compelling. Yeah. Because there's a sense in which, uh, like, and with the way that she talks about it's not his fault. There's a sense in which, like, it doesn't matter whether you're morally culpable, you're causing evil. Like, it's a utilitarian she has a moral utilitarian perspective that, like, your reasons aren't important. The effect that your actions have are important. And whether it's your fault or not, whether you're lying to me because you're malicious or because you don't genuinely don't know the difference between truth and lies, either way, you lie to me all the time and you kill people. Yeah. And whether we end up buying that perspective, I really like that it's articulated here. Mm-hmm. I think it's articulated very compellingly here. Yeah. I can't decide whether I'm on Sid's side in this argument or not. I feel like the last episode we talked about, you know, Sid is smart. She's not being duped by the Shadow King, etc. But is she? Is she still being, you know, she's decided that he's a villain and not a hero. She's decided that she was sent back in time to stop him. And that's all true. Yep. So she did believe everything Melanie told her in the last episode. Yeah. But she's not wrong. Yeah. And I think she needs to... I think she's saying the right things to David. Yeah. I think she's mostly right, and I mostly agree with her. There's some points... At which I think she's not quite on, and I want to get to them. Before we do, I want to call out one more, just like, line that I dance with glee at, which is just, are you okay? There's a lot of blood on your neck. She's like, yeah, it's not mine. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's, I don't know if it's a deliberate illusion, but it's a, uh, also my favorite line in Macbeth, hmm. is when uh, the... One of the murderers shows up to Macbeth, and Macbeth is like, there's blood on your face. And the murderer's like, it's Banquo's then. (laughs) Yeah. Somehow, there's blood on you. Oh, it's someone else's. Is a gag that I always find funny. (laughs) It's very, very dark humor. It sure is. Before we get, like, I have thoughts about whether Sid is right here. Mm -hmm. I see... Three important things happening in this conversation that I kind of want to talk about in turn, even though they kind of happen woven throughout the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. One is this sense of responsibility and culpability. Like, maybe it's not even your fault. You lie to me. I know maybe you love me, but you lie to me. Mm -hmm. Fruit kills people, you kill people. And the sense that I think is... As I said already, 
a fair argument whether you end up believing it or not, and I kind of end up not quite believing it or agreeing with it, but I think it's really fair that, like, even if it's not your fault, you're still the one doing it, Mm -hmm. right? There's another uh, conversation, there's another aspect of this conversation, which is they're talking about what is the nature of a monster, Throughout this conversation. Mm-hmm. Like David says, I'm the good guy. He's a monster. And later on, when David's in his own head, he's like, I'm the good guy. Fruks, Fruks the devil. How does she not see that? Uh, and throughout, I think this whole episode and even this whole season, and we're going to, we talked before we started recording about how we're going to try not to make this a season uh, uh, recap episode because we're gonna do that yeah we'll talk about the whole season soon in a future episode probably either one week or two because we have other things also that might happen anyway this is supposed to be a conversation just about this episode but what exactly is a monster mm-hmm. has been a theme through the whole season and is a theme in this conversation and when david says that Farouk is a monster and he's a good guy the show is really encouraging us to think about what exactly is a monster and what is fair for a monster. Mm -hmm. And the Minotaur is a literal monster who gets decapitated because he's a monster, because monsters don't deserve, like Sid shows up in this scene with the head of a monster. Yeah. Because if there's a monster, you can kill it. And if there's a human, you can't, or you aren't. It's more complicated. You aren't necessarily morally justified killing a human but you're definitely morally justified killing a monster so david's gonna bash the shadow king's head in because the shadow king's a monster Mm -hmm. and sid is gonna shoot david because david's a monster and sid's introduced to the scene with clear evidence that she is both willing and able to kill monsters and so what's a monster well i mean i think it's up for debate what a monster is it's what Sid has brought is the head of a monster, but she's also, I don't know what she's thinking. Like mm-hmm. she's, they're all monsters. She really is obsessed with the whole, he's a hero, he's a villain, he's a monster, but she doesn't want to stop and recognize that she herself could be a monster. You yeah. know? Sid here is fixated on hero villain. There's the hero. And there's the villain. David has been talking this way. It's a holdover from superhero comics in general. And I think it's one of the things that Legion as a show is interested in complicating. That Sid here is talking and thinking in very binary terms. Mm-hmm. You're either the hero or you're the villain. If you're not the hero, you're the villain. Because you're the villain, there has to be a the hero. That's me. And we've seen again through the whole show but let's talk just this episode that's a mistake so like there's a difference in my mind between a monster and a villain and a monster and the show's been interested in the language of villains and has we've talked about that on previous episodes but like a monster when i teach uh monster books i talk about a monster is the uh outer limit of what we define as human so it's useful ideologically as a definition of 
well, once you reach this point, you don't get to count as human anymore. And sometimes that's a moral distinction. Sometimes it's a genetic distinction. Sometimes it's a hereditary or a whatever. But uh, the reason we tell monster stories is so that we can tell ourselves, this is the boundary line. Once you are a dead body that's been reanimated by electricity, you don't get to count as human anymore, Frankenstein's monster. Once, you know. Mm-hmm. So what in the language of legion what would make farouk or david a monster and it's not the same to all the characters and there's a question of what is the show actually claiming is the monster and in this speech sid is saying serial killers she's relating them to serial killers yeah both sid both david and farouk have killed people lots of people yep and she want David wants to believe that all of the people he's killed have been under Farouk's influence, but it's not. Or even if it is, the question, one of the other kind of themes of this conversation is about uh, responsibility and culpability. Mm-hmm. That much like if Dracula doesn't have a soul, then maybe he's not morally responsible for the fact that he kills people and drinks their blood. Mm. But he's still monstrous, right? Right. And in terms of what a monster is, it's not about uh, moral judgment necessarily. It's about you're outside the realm of what's human and therefore can be destroyed. And you can't help it, right? Right. I was more thinking like that we define uh, once you've killed a certain number of people, you've considered a monster. Yep. That you stop being human. Yep. Or it's very complicated for us to think of a serial killer, for instance, as human. Yep. Absolutely. And I mean, not to jump the gun, I'm just going to be a little bit obtuse about it because we're going to have a deeper conversation about it a little later. But in this episode, David uh, does things that we might be comfortable considering monstrous. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, we'll get into that in a little bit, but I think that there is some lines that are crossed in this episode that can't be uncrossed. And we should come back when we get to that, to this idea of what's a monster. Mm-hmm. But separate from that, like inherited in, I want to come back and I could try not to be repetitive, but the hero and the villain, right? This binary thinking that has undergirded a lot of the uh, philosophical mistakes of the show mm-hmm. or of the characters in the show. I mean, yeah, that sometimes they get pointed out by characters in the show, but then everyone keeps returning to them. There's the hero and the villain. And if David isn't the hero, he thinks he's the hero. He thinks he's the good guy. And even in the conversation with his alts in his head, he talks about like, I'm the hero. I'm the good guy. The one who saves the day. He has this conception of himself as uh, the hero, which is a narrative construction, not a construction of realism right well, and even the voice in his head goes like oh saint david and it's like no, no no i'm you know i make mistakes but i'm still a hero and i really feel like one of the things that this show is so interested especially this episode in problematizing for us as viewers is exactly that that like the good guy what are you even talking about mm. <laughs> There isn't a the good guy. And the whole series, the whole season so far has been like adding a little bit of nuance to Farouk is the villain. Mm-hmm. And now in this episode, we're adding 
more uh, explicitly nuance and problems to David is the hero. Right, yeah. When Sid and David are talking, I feel like there's a moment he's trying to convince her not to kill him. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment when she is almost ready to be persuaded. And then he tries to use his psychic powers against her. Yes. And she has to say that it doesn't work right now. He's forgotten that he doesn't have powers. And it really feels like until that moment, he almost succeeded in persuading her. Mm-hmm. And that was the like, no, I can't trust you. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't her believing that she can't trust him. It was her recognizing that she can't trust him. Yeah, exactly. And then, like, when he finds that he's powerless and not convincing him, I, I love the way this confrontation is written, especially mm-hmm. for David's side of it, because he is not... Uh, He's not rhetorically consistent. Yeah. As very uh, realistic. Like someone in a moment of panic is going to like grasp at whatever rhetorical tools they possibly can. Especially someone who's not totally trustworthy. Yeah, exactly. We see him in this conversation put on different faces. Mm-hmm. To like, come on, you know me. To like, what, you're so... Like he get, he starts lashing out at her. Yeah, absolutely. When he tries to use his psychic powers and they don't work, and she's like, that's not going to work, then he lashes out at her. Mm-hmm. And that's another moment where I feel like, you know, we're seeing a side of David that we have seen hints of all along, even from season one, but we're seeing it more uh, nakedly here. And there's a lot of emphasis on David's true face. He keeps talking about, like, I saw your true face. And it's, you know, it's delighting and evil. And Farouk talked about masks earlier in the season. And it's very much this idea of he has some kind of true face that he's hiding. And I think that maybe he doesn't. He just, he has multiple faces. Yep. And he doesn't know what's real. Yep. And later on, Carrie's going to say, like, you can't reconcile yourself with yourself because he's ill yep. he's mentally ill and he doesn't have a sense of who he is at all no and so it's not a mask entirely it's completely different personalities yeah and that's where i think we're still like all through season one everyone was making a mistake about david when they kept saying like you're not mentally ill you have superpowers and we kept saying yeah no it's both Mm-hmm. Now, finally, in this episode, we get to that, yeah. the characters recognizing that. But even still, everyone's talking about, like, your true face, who you really are. And everyone's talking about, like, your true face is either a hero or a villain. Mm-hmm. And that what's real is just so much more complicated than that for everyone. Yeah. And for David in particular, for everyone, because no one is either a hero or a villain. No one has a true face. Uh, everyone is nuanced and, and complicated. Mm-hmm. But then for David particularly, even he doesn't know which version of himself is real because none of them are. Yeah. So when we go into David's head, we get this egg delusion playing over and over, and it's only the beginning part of it. Yep. It's this, a delusion begins as an egg, perfectly formed. And when one of his personalities. I love the way the subtitles 
define them as what is it? Divad. Divad and DVD, just to like to help people watching with subtitles know the difference between them. And I love that they're given different names. Yep. Um, just a little side note, but the one of his, they sh- he shows him an egg, and they go inside of the egg. And in it, David is saying, strapped into a chair, and he's just repeating over and over, I'm a good person, I deserve love. That's his delusion. That's his delusion. That's the delusion that Sid somehow introduced to him, was that he deserved love. Or that he was a good person. Or that he was a good person. Or that... I mean, I think there's three ways of reading that. There's two sentences, right? Mm-hmm. And there's three ways of reading what the delusion is. Yeah. Do we think... That the delusion is in the first sentence, that David is deluded to think he's a good person when actually he isn't? Do we think that the delusion is in the second sentence, that David is deluded to think he deserves love when actually he doesn't? Mm-hmm. Or I want to think that the delusion is in the connection between those two sentences. Yeah. Actually, those two sentences are non sequiturs. Yeah. And he's deluded because he thinks that there's any relationship between I'm a good person and I deserve love. Mm. I'm not sure that's actually what where the show is landing, but that's how I want to, that's what I would want to say in reality. Mm-hmm. That everyone deserves love, whether or not they're good people or not. Yeah. And no one is a good person. Yeah. Uh, but everyone deserves love. Yes. But also, is it a delusion? But these are just the thoughts in David's head. This is just like his illness speaking yeah not even like they're not being any more truthful than anything else yeah and so this idea of oh sid was this delusion in your head that made you think that you were loved and good but maybe she was maybe she you know she taught him to be good and this is for a while what so you weren't good and tell her yeah says the delusion mm-hmm. This is, I think you're exactly right. This is another way that the show is leading us down a garden path. The show is inviting us to make another mistake. And the mistake is, oh, one of these delusions is right. Yeah. Or one of these alternate voices is telling us something true, some true knowledge that we didn't have before. Mm -hmm. But we need to remind ourselves what you just said, that like, they're just... uh, aspects of his mental illness too mm-hmm. they're not any more likely to have some real uh insight into him or the world than he is yeah exactly i think they're both wrong one of them is telling him that he is unworthy of love and the other one is telling him that he is a god who you know is who their love is unnecessary mm-hmm. One of them is telling him that all the other people are never going to love him because he doesn't deserve it. And the other one's telling him their opinion is beneath you because you're a god. And they're both wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think in the end, he believes that he believes the god side. Yeah, I think so. And because he manipulates its memory in a moment. And what I think... What I found really interesting about this scene was the one David who's sitting in the rocking chair and telling him he's a god is right next to the lamp with the stars mm-hmm. that we've seen in David's bedroom. 
mm-hmm. over and over again in the first season and a little bit in this season. And this repeated thing from the first season of what did the stars say? What did the stars say? And I fixated a bit on it in our <laughs> first season of this podcast. And I think that this is a clue to that is the stars said you were a god. Yeah. The stars have been telling him he's a god all along. Hmm. And it was Baruch who believed it back then. But now it is David without Farouk in his head with the stars telling him you're a god because of all the things you can do. I like it. Until the show gives us a definitive answer differently, I am accepting as the headcanon that what the stars said is you are a god. Yeah. Absolutely accept. I want to, before we move on from this section, go slightly back just to uh, underline when Sid says that she's the hero. I think that's a statement of the show mm-hmm. that I want to accept. Yeah. And by hero, we want to be aware that in narrative, hero is a conflict, is a complicated term because it both, hero is like a moral designation of the good guy. But hero also gets used as like the protagonist, the main character whose actions are defining the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that Sid saying she's the hero is signaling a shift. And what I am anticipating in season three is that Sid is going to be the main character, mm-hmm. at least for a while. Yeah. Sid is our new protagonist. And we kind of can look back and revisit the whole show with Sid as the protagonist if we want to. I think so too. We're encouraged to. I just yeah. want to shout out to that. Especially this season has been, has had a lot of moments of focusing specifically on Sid. Yep. And her experiences. Back in the desert, just before Sid shoots him, Lenny lines up a shot and shoots the bullet out of the air. Helicopters and trucks arrive as Fukuyama to take Lenny down. In David's head, he makes a decision. When he wakes, He goes over to Sid and wakes her, but she is confused and no longer angry. Farouk awakes and Carrie places an electric crown on him. They load him into a truck, and David sits in the truck with money, telling her God has plans for her. Back in Division 3, Farouk is wheeled in and Sid goes to bed, refusing David's offer to be with her. David paces in his room and then argues with the two voices. He meditates and sends a projection of himself to Sid's room. He tells her he loves her and asks her to run away with him. They then have sex. David splits off another projection and sends it to Farouk. He mocks him, and Farouk again tries to make David sympathetic to him. Farouk says it's sick what David did to Sid. We see that Fukuyama is watching everything, including Sid have sex with an absent David. So Lenny shoots a bullet out of the air, and I was like, what? I know, that was brilliant, and that shows, like, how magical this gun really is. Yeah. I was, I, I was like, rolling on the floor. Not literally, but emotionally. I was really, really expecting this to be yet another, um, like, the first season where David just stops the bullet. Like, somehow that's the moment he got his power back. Yeah. But no, it's even better. It's the best. The best thing. I love Lenny shooting the bullet. I love it so very much. 
I don't know even why I, it's the best thing. Because it's so impossible. Because it's so, uh, like, Lenny, who was the most upsetting villain in mm-hmm. season one, is now, like, saving the day uh, from out of nowhere, which just underscores the, like, who's the hero and who's the villain. Well, <laughs> yeah, to David, <laughs> never that simple. Hero. Yeah. To, to David, Lenny's his hero, except that last season it was Lenny was the villain to David more than to anyone else. Yeah. So just like, it's just not that simple. It Stop really thinking in those simple terms, please. <laughs> I love it a million times. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, I assume the altars in David's head say, like, we're agreed, you know what you have to do. And then he alters her memory. Like, that's what they convinced him to do, right? I think so. Except that they don't want her to be him to be with her. I know. And later on, you haven't gotten to it yet, but later on they're going to say, you changed your memory, that wasn't the plan. Yeah. So what was the plan? What was the plan? They say you... her? <sighs> Maybe? Maybe. They say you know what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And then what was that? Because when he talks to Lenny after she's been arrested, he says, God has plans for you. Mm-hmm. And it's very clearly, t- seems like he's referring to himself. Yeah. Which makes me think that the DVD who wants David to believe that he's God is the one who's won this whole three-way argument. Yeah. I don't know. It's possible. Like, it, the thing is about David is who is in charge of his brain? Like, we think of there being like, well, there's the main David and then the other ones who are talking to him. But they're all still David, and any one of them could be in charge of David at a given moment. And he's no longer wearing t-shirts that helpfully tell us who's driving. I know. Come on, wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> I've thoughts about his wardrobe, but we'll save them for the season wrap-up episode. And then when they capture, when the helicopters drop out of the sky and they capture Farouk, I absolutely love that he's got like the halo from season one, but with barbs on it. So he, they give him a crown. Yeah, that was, I think it's beautiful. That prop is fantastic to have, yeah, what David wore, but with, to make it into a crown. He's, he's the king. He's the king. Let's give him a crown. I didn't think till right now, but there's also a... Uh, an interesting, can you think of any other figure who claimed to be a king and was given a crown that mocked him? Yeah, I was going down the same path as you right there. It's Christ-like imagery That's for the Shadow King. Quite surprising mm-hmm. that you're giving the Shadow King Christ imagery. Mm-hmm. Huh. I'm not sure what to make of it, but... I'm recognizing it at this moment. Yeah. Then they return, they all return to Division 3. Sid is like super out of it. We haven't, I hadn't quite figured out at this point what, I mean, I guess I had uh, presumed that he did something to her brain, but she doesn't want him around. She's, yeah, she's still on some level she knows, but on some level, like, what exactly did he erase? He erased the bad feelings she had about him. He erased her memory. What know. part of her memory? Yeah. Because, like, Carrie says, we fought a minotaur. 
does she remember that they thought of me to her? Yeah, and it, when you start to think about, I think it's exactly when you start to think about what would he have had to have changed for her no longer to want to kill him comes back once more to this uh, soup metaphor from season one. Mm-hmm. That, like, it kind of lays bare how much of a violation it would have to be. That, like, you can't just remember a single event. I mean, you can't just suppress the memory of a single event or a single conversation or a single moment. Yeah. You have to be, like, seriously messing with her mind. Mm-hmm. To suppress her, I mean, the conclusions that she had come to. Yeah, exactly. Also interesting that, like, you go to your room, which he's never been to. Yeah. They had a room set aside for him, but he just slept in Sid's room because that's where he went. Yep. But all along, he had his own room he could have gone to, but he's never been to. Yeah, what does that suggest? It's just that he is just assuming that Sid will always take him in. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that he keeps leaving her, mm-hmm. he just keeps going back to her. And it's their relationship, despite the fact that I've liked it in the past, and I've been very, like, a bit of a David and Sid shipper, but it's like an abusive relationship. Yeah. But they keep gravitating towards each other, but they are unhealthy for each other. And this episode especially highlights that. It feels to me the fact that he has a room he's never been to makes me think of those people you know in real life who went from, you know, the men you know who lived with their mom until they lived with their girlfriend and have never cooked a meal. Mm. Right? He lived with his mom until he lived with his sister, until he lived in a mental institution, until he lived with his girlfriend. Yes. And he is never, and that's not just about competence. It's about like self-reliance and uh, responsibility for himself. Mm-hmm. He has never been responsible for himself. And that's not necessarily like that. Do- that itself doesn't necessarily make him a bad person, but it suggests something about his identity, that his identity is defined uh, by reliance on others in a way that he's not even aware of. Mm-hmm. Right? He thinks of himself as... Uh, because of all his secrets and because of all kinds of... Like his power, he thinks of himself as self-regulating, but he has never lived on his own. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So then, he appears uh, as a projection in her room, despite the fact that she didn't want him there. Mm-hmm. That already, before anything else, the fact that he even appears there. Yeah. Is like... And there's something interesting about Sid. She's lying on her floor. Yeah. She's tired, but she's not in her bed. Yeah. And it's kind of, I feel like it speaks to her being confused. And not knowing exactly what to do with her own body. Like, she's not in the right space, in the right mental space. She's just, like, like she wants to go to bed, but she's not lying in her bed. She's just lying on the floor. Mm-hmm. She can't quite make it to the space that she's supposed to. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to what is going on in her head. Yeah, absolutely. She's missing parts. And David is just so insistent on... He, uh, this scene is very upsetting. So, I mean... He asks her to run away with him, and by half my notes is like, he asks her to run away with him. Man, he really is delusional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's maybe the most delusional thing he's ever said. Come run away with me now. At yeah. this point, I mean, maybe not the most delusional, but like, there's a real, yeah. This scene is very upsetting. It is. And I mean, Sid is going to spell it out later in the episode, but this is assault. This is, she's not consenting to this sex because she has no sense of what she actually feels. Yeah. He has changed her mind. He has, and he has in, she even says you drugged me. Yeah. And that is what he's done. He has changed her mind and her personality by like magical mutant means, but that's drugging someone to have sex with them and to have our protagonists of our show do that is if it does feel like a line that is crossed mm-hmm. and I've seen several reactions kind of in the past week since this aired of people who are kind of done with the show because of this who are extremely upset and I can see their point. Mm-hmm. It's upsetting. I think it shows us that he is, he has become a villain. And I also appreciate that the show calls it out. Yeah. They don't have this happen. And um, I'm once again, bringing up Buffy. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry if you haven't watched that show. But there's a part, there's a time when someone is magically mind wiped and then someone has sex with them and there's no consequences and it's never dealt with like, Hey, that was rape. And in this, it really is. And I appreciate that. And I like the way that we can in 2018 say that's unacceptable. What you did was unacceptable. So there's like, yeah. Oh, at first, absolutely agreed. Mm-hmm. This scene, I have a lot of thoughts. Um, I can totally with you. I can see why someone might think uh, this is too far and I'm done. I think, uh, and like, well, maybe even I'll say some of the reasons why this might be too far, even for the show, like for the character and for the show. Like there are some people who will watch this and say, I'm done. This character is now irredeemable. Nothing you're going to do in the next season is ever going to bring him back in my mind from this. Uh, so, like, why would I continue with this show? He's irredeemable from this point on. And they presume, uh, a lot of people presume that, like, season three is going to be his redemption arc. Bring him back from villainy. And they're saying, you can't bring him back. Yeah. The other thing that people will say that I think is fair is like, so you want to show that he's bad. And the only way you can think to do that is have him rape someone because like, that's your nuclear option. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's 
she becomes just like the casualty of trying to somehow show that he's really is really dark. And like, that's tired. Mm-hmm. And some people will say, for her, like, what was the point of this? Like, well, we've got to get Sid really damaged. And how do you damage a woman emotionally for the sake of your show? Well, you give her a rape in the background, in the her history. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's also a thing that's been done too often and is, like, gross. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, so I can see why people react so strongly, and I think it is fair. All those points are valid. And if if you, listener, are giving up on this show after this episode, I, fair enough. Yeah. You go do that. That's absolutely fair enough. I think uh, there's, in the show, we've been seeded a lot about, uh, that lead up to this moment. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, in a John Hamm narration where now we come to the most dangerous delusion of all, the idea that other people don't matter. Mm-hmm. That's what is happening at this moment. Yeah. Right? And there's people I have seen, I try to avoid, I try to avoid too much talk about the show before we record because I don't want to just be parroting other people's opinions, but like I can't avoid it completely because a lot of the people that I follow on Twitter through Clockworks are, are Legion fans, go figure. And then they talk about the show. And anyway, so I've seen a lot of people talking about like, this is a turn. And he used to have, you know, uh, this is uh, a break of his character. Hmm. And I don't really think that's correct. No, I don't think it is either. They're contrasting. There's a big contrast to remember in the first season when like, there are two of them are on the swings and she says she doesn't like people being too close and he swings away from her mm-hmm. and how sweet that was. Yeah. But their first sexual experience in the white room is not a million miles away from this. No. She wasn't really very happy with him. That whole scene is quite creepy. Mm-hmm. And people read it as like romantic and I never did. Mm-hmm. And I feel like uh, how much it resonates now with this moment makes me be like, they weren't aiming at romantic and missing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think he was, he has always been uh, tempted in all ways. As he develops his psychic powers, he's been tempted to misuse them, mm-hmm. tempted to diminish the the uh, independence and self-governance of others. Mm. And specifically with Sid, he has shown himself increasingly willing to treat her as like someone that he brings along with him. And like, think of the moment in this season where he's in her head trying to learn about her and he's, Think about what we noticed in that episode about how little he understands her and about how his first reading of what's going on in her brain is that she's afraid that he won't love her anymore because he thinks it's all about him. Yeah, if that's exactly what I was going to say, is that if you see what's, what the history of Sid and David, David is so, doesn't think of Sid as an actual person. Yeah. He's, 
she's just an extension of like I love girl, girl must be And he has like this. I think he has moments where he recognizes her as a person. Yes. But he's always his temptation is to start think is to you know, get fuzzy about whether she has real humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the other thing I think is really important about my reading of this scene is that uh, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't think there's any ambiguity that this is assault. Mm-hmm. But I think there is plausible. It is plausible that he doesn't feel like he's doing anything wrong because of what he's done in the past, right? I think that's 100% true that he doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. It's this typical, like, oh, I didn't look at her the right way, and so I didn't realize what I was doing. It was like, it's it's dehumanizing. Yeah. David doesn't recognize the person that he is. It's it's what Carrie is going to say that is just like a key part of this episode and maybe this entire show is David cannot reconcile the person he sees himself is as to the person he really is. And he, since the beginning, has been trying on all these different personalities and he for a while was trying on the I'm a good person yep. personality. And then, and now he's not. And this is certainly a part of that. He also is so absent from what he's doing. He is sending out multiple uh, pieces of himself. Like, while he is there having sex with Sid, he is also in a room talking to Farouk. Yeah. About what he's doing. Yep. And Farouk is calling him out on, you're sick. Yep. What you're doing is sick in, you know... It makes me sick, and you are sick, David. You are ill. Yeah. And you're splitting yourself into these different things is not the sign of a healthy mind. And it's not just the mutantness of you that can split up like this. It's the mentally ill part of you. Yeah, absolutely. And I like your drawing attention to Farouk's use of the word sick. Mm-hmm. Because it's absolutely, I think you're right, it's a... Uh, loaded word. It means both it's disgusting what you're doing, but it also means it's ill what you're doing. Yeah. And we see Fukuyama watching all of this and at the same, and just recognizing what is going on. Mm-hmm. And Fukuyama is, is this godlike surveillance. And so we have another character who is godlike mm-hmm. and it's still a mystery. Fukuyama is still basket-headed mystery. Yep. You know, of exactly what he's doing. But there are parts of his power that are much like David and Farouk make him godlike. And this yeah. is an example yeah, of this omnipresent observation. And so he has information that none of the rest of them do. Yeah. About... David's conversation with Farouk. Mm-hmm. There's, he, like, comes to, I mean, like, he comes to see Farouk and Farouk says to gloat, and David's like, no, but like, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally is to gloat. And David says, you lost. And Farouk says, did I? Mm-hmm. 
it comes back to what we've heard him say, even if I lose, I win. Yeah. He's still not defeated. Mm-hmm. And now he's in Division 3. So now he has the advantage of, like, their turf. Yep. And then we come back to another thing that we've seen with Farouk before that, uh, you know, when David says, don't try to make me feel sympathy for you. And David's, and Farouk says, why not? Is it working? I know. And it's once more, in a lot of ways, Farouk is a evil character who does evil and is manipulative, but he's not wrong in his, like, sympathy is a bad thing. When David refuses to feel sympathy for Farouk, that is one of the signs of David's growing monstrosity. Yeah. Because it is a, it is a virtue to have sympathy even for your enemies. And it is a vice to deny sympathy. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So I really like that that seed gets called back up again. And it's happening at the same moment as he's having sex with Sid uh, because they're connected. He doesn't have sympathy because he doesn't have empathy. He's not seeing either the woman he says he loves or his enemy he says he hates. He's not seeing them as human. Mm-hmm. And he's dehumanizing them in different ways, but he's dehumanizing both of them at the same time. In this scene with Farouk, um, there's a shot in it that all throughout Legion, we have these mirrored shots, we have these mirrored moments, and this one with Farouk looking out the window and David behind him, and the coloring and the lighting and looking out the window is exactly the same as season one, episode one, with Sid and David looking out a window, Mm. and Sid says... You know, if you squint your eyes, you don't see the mental hospital. And here we have Farouk and David in this same exact shot. And it's just, it speaks to just like parallel things throughout this show and throughout, and like just the brilliance too of filmmaking in this show. Yep. And maybe if if Farouk squints, he can't see that he's a captive at (sighs) Vision 3. And he sees the crown on his head as an actual crown. because the space is distorted in that window. I like it. In the lab, Carrie and Carrie discuss killing the Minotaur as male Carrie recreates the scene on the hill. He realizes that David has changed Sid's memory and says, it's treachery. In his cell, Farouk breaks his electric crown for a moment and calls a mouse to him. He whispers to it and sends it to Sid. We get a series of title title cards which talk about the trial of the Shadow King, the sane man who is crazy, and what is normal is what nine wise men can agree. In a narration, Carrie talks about the ship of fools, and we see people in their various rooms. David is led into a room with Clark, Fukuyama, two Vermillion, Sid, Carrie, and Carrie. As David stands in the center of the room, Carrie creates a force field around him. Farouk enters as David tries to get out. Sid says they're trying to help him. Vermillion 
tells David he's convicted of future crimes. Farouk says that he's sad that this boy is undone by revenge. Sid tells him he's both sick and a mutant. They offer to help, but David is angry. Sid tells him that he drugged her and had sex with her, but David keeps repeating that he's a good person, and then he says he's done and escapes. He appears in Lenny's cell and takes her with him. Sid and Clark arrive to an empty cell, and we cut to credits. <sighs> yeah. Okay, first of all, can I gush once more about a part that I adore, which is Carrie describing the smell of the Minotaur's blood to Carrie? Yes. <laughs> Did I tell you I killed a Minotaur? Yes, in graphic detail. It's blood. It smelled like a Boolean cube. <laughs> Didn't taste like that, though. I love it. I love how, like, Carrie is literally bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but awesome. she's so, like, she's so pure about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, Boolean, yet another reference to soup. Yeah, good call. Oh, I love that moment, and I love Carrie and Carrie. They're my favorite people this season. Yeah. And like the relationship between them is complicated and complex and sometimes can be very father daughter. And the moment when he's like, he's trying to use his like, he says welding goggles and all these wires and everything. And he's moving his hands in ways. And she's just like, ah, you look like a big dork right now. And that's very, feels very father daughter relationship. But then when she's like, those bouillon cubes when we were kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love it. Um, and then he makes his discovery. It's treachery. Mm-hmm. Which is what? Is, is that what Melanie and Oliver said? At the she says the betrayal. The betrayal? Okay. It's treachery. He's so disappointed. Mm-hmm. Because Carrie has trusted David maybe more than anyone. He has. Right? Like, maybe even more than Sid. Yeah. That was a really good good call. And he's really helped him. He's done everything he can to, like, build things to increase his power to help him. Like, he made this whole tank. But then we also know that he made the sphere. Yep. Um, The mouse that comes along. Is it going to sing Slave to Love? Thing is, like, immediately it's is brings to mind that whole scene in that episode the the most scenes late allowed. When we see I love that. When we see uh Farouk with the halo breaking through it, it struck me that we've seen Farouk break break through or we've seen the Shadow King break through one of these halos before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so of course he can. Yeah, exactly. He has done it before. And they tried to reinforce it. Mm-hmm. But he's in his own body now. It's not surprising at all that he breaks through it mm-hmm. a little bit. I love him getting the mouse to whisper in Sid's ear yeah. also. And it's exactly like, I mean, not exactly like, it is a mirror of the black creatures, the eggs that uh, Potonomy whispered to, and then they whispered in people's ears. Yeah, exactly. So it leads us to question... Whether, like, still, who's a villain and who's a hero? And what's the nature of villainy and hero heroism? 
because on one hand, if Farouk is telling Sid the truth so that she can learn the truth, so that she can regain her agency, like that's all good. Yeah. But do we want to trust Farouk and the things that he's whispering in her ear? Maybe. Maybe now we do. Why? Because David's bad? That must make him good? Yeah. Is it binary? I don't think it is. Yeah. Agreed. And this just draws a lot of parallels in this episode to that egg and the creature who came out of it. And whether this is, again, a a monster come to Division 3 in the form of the Shadow King Mm -hmm. doing the same things. And David was the only one who could save them. And is this, is it really that David is the villain at the end of this? Or is it just that he's different? He's Uh, doing villainous things. He is. So we have these like chapter 12, which by the way, where was chapter 11? There was one. It was chapter 10 and then chapter 12. And I haven't been like, when was the last time we saw these captions with, Book one, section two, chapter three was the last one. Nine? I don't know. No, it's all messed up. It's all messed up. But I love it. Uh, Chapter 12. I love the texture of these cards, Mm -hmm. by the way. Just the, like, the, uh, they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. And they say, they talk about truth. Perhaps there are competing truths. The truth of the mind, the truth of the heart. And also, what is normal is that upon which nine wise men can agree. And this brings me back again, not for the first time, to Plato's cave. Mm -hmm. What's normal, all the wise people agree that the shadows they're looking at are what's real. Right? The one who breaks off... Uh, Leaving the tent to swing from the hangman's rope. Exactly. That's what they say. Well, also, you skipped... The beginning says, What is the sound of truth? Waves on a beach, the laugh of a child. David's flashbacks to his childhood are always on the beach with his sister. Mm-hmm. And we've heard again and again this like sound of children laughing randomly throughout that seems like it's part of David's head or part of David's delusion or something. And so is that the sound of truth? What is going on inside David's head? Or perhaps there are competing truths. And so like, what are we being shown here? What are we being told here about what is actually true, except to say that nothing is true? Or at the very least, It's reminding us that we can't just take what we see as reliably true, right? Mm -hmm. Even our own senses, even our own judgments, and that's not just a statement on this show. It's something I think the show is trying to impart upon us about the world at large. That, like, truth is just not as... uh, easily obtained as we like to believe it is it just isn't yeah and tv shows especially superhero shows 
we are used to them simplifying the truth. And what Legion wants to do is complicate it instead. Yeah. We're used to like, well, let's boil down these complexities. There's a hero. There's a villain. We root for the hero. They're the good guy. What they do is good. Uh, they can sometimes switch and become evil and then become good. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Legion is not... Uh, interested in that simplicity and a lot of viewers even i think like i read a whole review of this episode and i didn't mean to (laughs) but i read a whole review of this episode that was really upset that david's become a villain because we can't trust like we're untethered yeah but like what show did you think you were watching yeah exactly We've never been tethered. <laughs> no. And like, what world do you think you're living in? Who is the unbruised apple? If all apples are bruised and the unbruised apple is bad, who in this show is the unbruised apple? Is it David? Is it maybe the Shadow King? Hmm. Because this, this section, chapter 12, begins with, the trial of the Shadow King, and then goes on to say all these things. Yeah. And what then happens afterwards is not the trial of the Shadow King, it's the trial of David. You're right. And then after the cards, we get Carrie voiceovering the story of the Ship of Fools, which in a lot of ways is telling us the same lesson mm-hmm. in different terms. Yeah. And it's once again like, I just feel like a lot, we are very, we're very tempted to read this whole show as if this card and Carrie's voiceover didn't happen. As if going into this trial of David, we weren't told the people you think are sane might be mad and the people you think are mad might be sane and who's to decide. Yeah, exactly. Right? And then we go into it and we're like, you're the villain now and you're insane. And I don't think that the point of that is, no, David doesn't have any, any mental illness. He is completely uh, in control of his mental facts. I don't think that's the point. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the point is everything David has done is good. And the show is uh, giving them the seal of A plus uh, approval. Yeah. I don't think that's the point at all either. But I do think that uh, anytime where you're tempted to say, oh, now I know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, we should think twice. Yeah, absolutely. In this narration talks about nine wise men can agree. Mm -hmm. And then we go into this room where we have count them. Fukuyama and two vermilion, Clark. Four. Carrie, Carrie, Sid. Uh, Seven. Seven. The Shadow King, eight. And David is nine. They don't agree. They don't agree. They all agree except David. Hmm. So there isn't a ten, but there are nine people in this room. Hmm. That I found that, I think that was deliberate. Especially because they give an overhead shot of the room. So we really see how many people are there. Hmm. And they don't agree, but what do they agree on? 
Is there something that they do all agree on? Is it something we're not noticing? I'm saying this without an answer. It's not a rhetorical question. (laughs) I'm not sure. Do they all agree that David is crazy? And I mean, I use crazy in air quotes here. He's mentally ill. Yeah. I'm not sure David agrees with that. Yeah. Also, um, at one point there's 11 people in the room because there's two other Davids. Yes. That's a good thought. I think that it can't be, or I guess it could be, but I don't accept that it's a coincidence that you talk about nine wise men agree and then you show us a room with nine people in it. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. And the tenth hangs from a, a rope because what makes you insane is you're deviant. What makes you abnormal is deviance from consensus, mm-hmm. social convention, rather than any objective truth is the judge is the uh, arbiter of what reality is. We've had that through the whole series as something that we both accept sometimes and reject sometimes. Yeah. What's the social convention or the not social? What's the convention is that like David's mentally ill? And when I in this whole in this whole scene, I feel like interrogating David is a good idea, but letting the Shadow King loose is very much not a good idea. This is, yeah, this is what I wanted to talk about next, which was Farouk is just free. He's not wearing his crown anymore. He just walks right into that trial room with no restraint. He is completely. Like, did he completely break his crown and they are all under his spell? Like, is this... They're doing the right thing and, like, they're all speaking the truth. Mm-hmm. But they're all also very susceptible to being completely under the Shadow King's control at this point. Because he's just free and and unburdened. Yeah. And what is that saying? And it's the mistake from the very beginning of the episode of... If David is the villain, that must make Fukuyama, I mean, that must make Farouk the hero, or not the hero, Sid's the hero. But if David's the villain, that must mean that Farouk isn't. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's what the nine wise men agree on is that if the enemy of the villain is the hero and the enemy of the hero is the villain, yeah. that there's a binary mm-hmm. and you're either the good guy or the bad guy. Are you uh, deliberately using the word binary because of all the binary code we saw earlier, or is that just a fun coincidence? I'm not. I have no connection in my mind between that. Do you have any? Didn't occur to me at all. I just think that's kind of interesting. That we talk about being binary and being like it's this or that, and earlier in the season, we were in a room full of binary code. Hmm. Ooh, that's interesting. I think it's just a mistake. I think it's a mistake that the characters, not the show, are making. Mm -hmm. That uh, if you're the hero, you're not the villain. I think the show is well aware that it's doing this. Yeah. And it's trying to draw our attention to that that's not okay. By the narrations and by the other things. And, I mean, there's also, even visually now... 
we have David in this cage that is like a big atom. Yes. It's like, it's got a nucleus and it's got things spinning around and it's very visually X-Men, very visually uh, atomic bomb. Yep. He's the weapon. He's the, he's Adam, the first man. He is (laughs) so much symbolism in that shape they put David in. And the atoms are reflecting in Farouk's sunglasses. Yep, and Sid's eyes. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's such a good use of symbolism. Yeah. Or iconography, maybe is a better word. It's such a good use of iconography. Yeah. And also, in terms of villain and hero and binary things, David walks into this room he is entirely clothed in white. He's wearing white, white t-shirt and white pants. Suddenly he yeah. wasn't wearing that the whole episode. And he comes into the room and everyone else is in dark colors, yep. mostly black, like Carrie and male Carrie and Sid and Clark and Vermilion and Fukuyama and the shadow King, all black clothes. And female Carrie is wearing her standard, uh, season two, uniform or outfit or whatever but it's dark blue it's dark blue yeah yeah so you have his darkness versus light and when he escapes he really like glows white and floats up and it feels like you were saying christ-like imagery about the shadow king before it's christ-like imagery here and god-like imagery Mm -hmm. he's rising up and light is pouring out of him but that's also, is that trickery? Is that the reverse of what we see? Or is that saying something about what we should see? And remember back the green means stop and red means go. Yeah. White is black and black is white. Yeah, exactly. And he specifically says Farouk is the devil. And now he says he's God. Yeah. And we know he's not God. Yeah. Sure do. I love one of the moments that, like, I still don't trust him. I think it's a mistake to trust him, a profound mistake, but I absolutely love the moment that Farouk says, if like it breaks my heart to see you this way, the sweet boy undone by revenge. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly true. Yeah. And it's this a- reminds me of Hamlet. Yes. Like, this is the craziness of revenge yep. that will drive you to madness. And maybe that's partly what has driven him mad. Yeah, absolutely. I think absolutely it is. Part. I mean, like, we, we say in this scene that it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Because David, I think, would have been mentally ill no matter what. Mm-hmm. And also, his superpowers... uh manifest in ways that are really similar to certain kinds of mental illness. And also he has intense trauma Mm -hmm. through the shadow King, like telling him lies and messing with his memory, his whole childhood. And also he's motivated by revenge and is undone by revenge. Like all of these things at once. And it comes back again to his conversation with Sid at the beginning. That like maybe none of that is his fault. Mm-hmm. 
but that doesn't mean he's not dangerous. Yeah. And this is where, like, we talk about in this episode, we they talk about his turn. And again, I feel like that's just a mistake. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because, and it, even in the comics, like this is in the last episode of uh, Clockworks, I talked about people talking about how David is a villain in the comics. And I was like, well, it's not quite that simple. Because even in the comics, he's never either a villain or a hero. Mm-hmm. He's in complicated anti-hero who does damaging things while under control or accidentally or I mean even in the comics part of the point of David Haller is to complicate this idea of there's heroes and there's villains Mm -hmm. I think the show even more than the comics is doing that yeah so in the last lines of the show David escapes and Sid says what do we do now and Clark says we pray yeah to what god when both david and farouk have claimed deity for themselves mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting to have a character say that yeah agreed and i mean i say that that's the last line of the show but really the last line of the show is the song cornflake girl <laughs> this is not really happening yeah oh, you bet your life it is and even the way the the Tori Amos version is, this is not really, this is not really, really, this is not really happening. But in Noah Hawley's cover, he really doesn't, he leaves off the E. Yeah. This is not real. This is not real. This is not really happening. So what he repeats over and over is, this is not real. Yeah. So maybe it's all not real. Well, of course it isn't. It's a TV show. And we know, I mean, I feel like you and I coming into this show, this season, having watched Fargo, mm-hmm. should have known better, or not known better, but like should not be surprised that Noah Hawley likes sometimes to really remind us that you are watching a TV show right now. Yeah. And when he says this isn't real, like, no, he, seriously, Take him seriously when he says that, because he's not being metaphorical. This is not real. This is not real. Also, speaking of connections to Fargo, I just want to... There's another... Throughout all three seasons of Fargo, and we have a bonus episode per season of Fargo that you could go back and listen to if you want to hear our thoughts about Fargo. It's a good show worth watching. Mm -hmm. But in every season of Fargo, there's a character who has a line that's from Fargo the movie where like the most horrible character in the season will have the line, I'm the real victim here. Mm-hmm. That's basically what David says. Yeah. Not those words, but when he's talking to the himselves in his head, he's like, I, I'm the real victim here. <laughs> yeah. It is like he's saying that. It's the same. He's, he's a Fargo villain. Mm-hmm. Right. That is a villain who part of his villainy is that he doesn't understand that he's a hero. I mean, who doesn't understand that he's a villain, believes that he's a victim Mm -hmm. rather than a hero or a villain. So I think we'll leave this episode there. Before we talk about the songs, I just want to mention that we'll talk about the entire season as a whole in its own episode. 
So all of these themes that are coming together at the end here, we'll discuss in, in more detail in an episode that will be either next week or the week after. Just watch your feed. It'll be there. Uh, if you have anything you want us to include in that episode, make sure to get in touch with us. And I'll say how to do that at the end of when after Paul talks about the songs. So go ahead. What songs are in this episode, Paul? Well, the first song is the song that gives us the title of our episode, Behind Blue Eyes. Originally by The Who, but performed here by Dan Stevens, Naveed Negaban, and Jeff Russo. Um, and the like, words of that, the lyrics of that song that are really worth drawing attention to is, No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. This is the first thing David says in this episode. Mm. And then you're telling me you're surprised that he is the villain by the end of the episode. Yeah. Uh, no one knows what it's like to be hated, to be fated to telling only lies. And then the show is very fixated. The episode is very fixated on how David lies. Yeah. He doesn't, uh, perhaps doesn't even know what's true. Yeah. And he lies to Sid He's fated to telling only lies. It is not, he's fated because it is not necessarily his fault, but still what he says is lies. Mm -hmm. And also my dreams, they aren't as empty as my conscience seems to be. He seems to be acting without conscience. He seems to be acting as if other people don't matter, but his dreams aren't as empty as that there is more beneath the surface than what his actions seem to be which doesn't excuse his actions but it just adds nuance and complexity to them and then also like i've hours only lonely my love is vengeance that's never free the sweet boy destroyed by revenge his love is vengeance there's more and more i feel like every line of behind blue eyes we could connect to the action of this episode but i'm going to stop there yeah it's i mean like like you said at the beginning if you could pick a if, pick a perfect song for this entire show it's behind blue eyes and right down to the fact that dan stevens has like his dreamy blue eyes <laughs> i mean just his blue eyes you, I, you, I, I didn't say dreamy you don't have to emphasize the dreamy <laughs> to describe them like that would be fine to just comment on the blue eyes <laughs> While Melanie and Oliver are in their cube, the music playing is Topsy by Count Basie. It has no lyrics, but it is uh, appropriately for Oliver jazz music. It's not as freeform jazz as what he was playing in the ice cube for uh, David before. It's more like big band Count Basie. Oliver reads his poem that I already talked about. While David is fretting with Sid about Sid before he shows up uh, in her room. We have Jeff Russo and Noah Hawley uh, doing a cover of Nothing in the World Can Stop Me Worrying About That Girl, which is originally by the Kinks. We heard a Kink song back in Cornflake Girl. The song Destroyer was playing as the car teleported. Mm. And the words of... I feel like this is really worth stopping on because nothing in the world can stop me worrying about that girl. The words go, met a girl, fell in love, glad as I can be, met a girl, fell in love, glad as I can be. But I think all the time, is she true to me? I found out I was wrong. She was just too timing. I found out I was wrong. She just kept on lying. 
Now she tries to tell the truth, and I just can't believe, because there's nothing in this world world can stop me worrying about that girl. We're focused at first on David, and because the song says, uh, I met a girl, nothing can stop me worrying about that girl, we are, by default, associate the me with David and the girl with Sid. But if you pay attention to the words... In their relationship, who is the one who is thinking all the time, is my partner true to me? Mm-hmm. Who is the one who found out that they were wrong? Their partner kept on lying. The partner tries to tell the truth, but I just can't believe. Uh, she, in this song, is David. Yeah. Me, in this song, is Sid. Mm-hmm. The, the speaker is not David. Yeah. Sid is the one who can't stop worrying about that girl, and the girl is David. Mm-hmm. Because Sid is the hero. Mm-hmm. Because Sid is the protagonist of the song and the show. The song, the episode, and the series are Sid's, actually. And we've been seeing it wrong. And we're once more kind of led down the garden path. If you don't think about it, you would think that this song is expressing David's opinion. Mm-hmm. But it isn't. This is Sid speaking. The end credit song, another cover by Noah Hawley and Jeff Russo of Cornflake Girl, which we referenced in the episode Cornflake Girl, but didn't actually show up in that episode. It shows up here. It's originally by Tori Amos. We hear most of the... Uh, first verse mm-hmm. sung by Noah Hawley. Never was a cornflake girl. Thought that was a good solution. Hanging with the raisin girls. She's gone to the other side. Giving us a yo heave ho. Things are getting kind of gross. And I go at sleepy time. This is not really happening. You bet your life it is. And we really emphasize that this is not real, this is not real, this is not really happening. But Um, also the moment that she, he arrives in the cell, you get the cornflake girl as it focuses on Lenny. So like, if you're listening, it's right there. There she is, cornflake girl. Yep. And, uh, the like, I thought it was a good solution hanging with the raisin girls is like, I thought that hanging out with the good, the uh, less common girls was a good solution, but maybe it wasn't, as David gives up on hanging out with the people who are a good influence on him. Mm-hmm. And, and things are getting kind of gross. <laughs> I mean, uh, this episode does moments where things are getting kind of gross, morally speaking. But most importantly of all, is this real or is this not? Is this really happening or is this not? Both what's happening, what's the narrative of the show? We're left at the end of this season as uncertain as we have ever been about the direction of the show, about where we stand in terms of who we are rooting for and trusting and what to expect in the future and uh, even whether what we've seen has literally occurred. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And we said earlier, like, I can understand why people would give up on the episode. I really can. And it's fair enough if you do. 
I'm not giving up on this show. I, I really, really liked this episode. Mm-hmm. I did too. I think that there's a lot to unpack in it and a lot to unpack in this entire season based on what happens in this episode. Yeah. And I have faith that it's going to be, uh, that the next season is going to live up to what, how the next season ended. Me too. And what I'm really looking forward to is watching the whole season real quick, just one more time, probably this week. And because we're just like that, we'll just watch it again <laughs> and analyzing the whole season. And I'm looking forward to, to going over what, what we think it meant all along, things like the Minotaur all the way along, things talk about all of the John Hamm narrations. So if there's anything specific you want us to focus on, to talk about, or any questions you wish you, we would answer about Clockworks, the podcast, about and mostly about season two in general, give us a shout out. Um, you can do that on Twitter, at ClockworksCast. If you're asking us something about the season wrap-up, maybe give it a hashtag, ClockworksCast as well. That would be super great. Longer form questions, you can either email us, clockworkscast at gmail.com, or if you're a Patreon subscriber, just leave a comment down below in our Patreon page on this episode. Mm-hmm. If you like this episode, if you like our show and want to support us, if you want season three to be even better, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast, and we'll do some, hopefully some bonus episodes now that the season is done, that'd yep. be pretty awesome. We've got some plans. We'll... Anything else that you want to tell the fine folks at home, Paul? No, just uh, this has been a roller coaster ride, and I have really had a blast recapping and analyzing. I haven't done any recapping. You've done the recapping. But uh, hearing your recaps and analyzing season two of Legion, if you've been with us all along, we're so uh, grateful and happy. And if you're new this season or partway through this season, you can go back. We talk all about the first season, and we're so honored that you'd give us your time. This is such a pleasure for me. So I'm so excited that we're done this season, that we've got more things to think about. I'm really looking forward to season three and to some of our bonus episodes that are planned for between the seasons. Until then, I've been Paul Moffat. I've been Jan Moffat. Goodbye.